In the summer of 1978, two music journalists named Vince Letty and Michael Gomez published a conversation between themselves about the state of disco. Aletti, I noticed that you're not writing as much about records recently, and you seem to be more down on disco. Gomez, I'm just tired of it. I hear it everywhere I go. It's like everybody plays the same records. I would give half my kingdom to the DJ who would play something out of the ordinary. I want to be shocked. I want to be shocked out of complacency of just hearing the same thing that I can hear from Club A to Club B to Club C. One night, I made a tour of clubs and I swear, I left one club on one record and made it to the other club on the same record. I think disco is spreading itself too thin. Now everything is disco. Life is now an endless disco party. Aletti. When there are so many disco TV shows and things like that, I begin to wonder now. It is spreading itself too thin. Gomez. You yourself must remember in the 60s, people began to be aware of a very new sound of music. It had been there as a culture, but suddenly broke loose and then everything was swamped with beads and everything became very hippie-ish. When you start identifying a scene with a look or clothing, people get tired of it. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. We are a member of the Goat Rodeo Network, who I might add just launched four brand new podcasts, but I'll talk more about them later. This show is the second episode of a two-part series on disco. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes yet, we encourage you to listen to that one first. Both episodes contain a fair amount of mature content, so if you have children in the room, please consider listening with headphones. At the end of our last episode, the success of the movie Saturday Night Fever had driven disco culture out of the underground and into the mainstream. But Saturday Night Fever portrayed a version of the culture that those in New York's disco scene barely recognized. But to the wider public, that didn't matter. They hungered for more disco. And to feed that hunger and make billions of dollars in the process, corporate America stepped in, eventually pushing disco culture in the opposite direction of those who created it. Here's Tim Lawrence, author of the book Love Saves the Day, a history of American dance music culture. But all around the country, entrepreneurs, many of them who've had no connection whatsoever to dance music previously, think that they can reproduce a Brooklyn-style discotheque, and they do. And thousands upon thousands of discotheques open. Every Chinese restaurant in the Northeast at 10 o'clock on a Friday night turned into a disco. There were just discos popping up everywhere. Bars were turning into discos. We had disco cruises all of a sudden. It was just massive amount of money. That's Joey Carvello, a Boston club DJ and later a record promoter. Historians estimate that in 1979, there were as many as 20,000 discotheques in the U.S. For comparison, there are only 14,000 McDonald's in the country today. As Carvello said, a discotheque could be a small ethnic restaurant that morphed into a club when the dinner crowd left. Some were roller skating rinks called roller discos. Others were added to hotels located off the beaten path that catered to traveling salesmen. While historians don't count these in the total, some enthusiasts even began converting their bedrooms. A growing number of affluent, single playboy types are turning the bedrooms of their plush co-op apartments and homes into mini-discos. The playboys see the concept of a disco bedroom as an innovative twist to an age-old art of seduction— 
and are willing to pay top dollars to indulge their whims. While the nouveau riche are plunking down $20,000 for a fancy light show to doll up their lair of seduction, oil-rich Arabian sheiks, despite outward displays of religious piety, are laying out small fortunes in cash to convert sections of their palaces into Western-type dance halls. Equipment suppliers are smiling happily all the way to the bank. Billboard Magazine, January 13, 1979. But of all the 20,000 discotheques, none would come to symbolize disco glamour more than a club located in Manhattan's theater district on 54th Street, appropriately named Studio 54. The club opened just eight months before Saturday Night Fever and soon became synonymous with the words disco and celebrity. On any given night, the club had a long line of polyester-clad dancers waiting to get past its velvet rope. The other thing to say about the velvet rope is it's a piece of iconography borrowed from, I believe, the opera and then got reinstated at various discotheques in the 1970s certainly most famously outside Studio 54, which very much kind of wanted to figure itself as an elite discotheque, where, you know, models and famous people, actors and so on and so forth, were uh, fashion designers were to be welcomed. I think Studio 54 is the beginning and the end. That's Jim DeRogatis, music journalist and co-host of Sound Opinions. When you begin to have the velvet ropes and the only beautiful people get in... The exclusiveness of something like that is a far cry from, you know, the underground disco community early on. By the time you get to Studio 54, it's mainstream and it's Andy Warhol hanging out with Bianca Jagger and it's lines of coke as long as your arm. It's no longer uh, representing the community that gave birth to that sound. Now, that was Studio 54, and who gives a shit about Studio 54? <laughs> Sorry. Tell me how you Sorry. Really- <laughs> I have a lot of friends that work there, and I respect the DJs, and I get it. But at the end of the day, that was uh, it was a bunch of poses. It was an image thing. you know. And I, I get I went there, and I had fun there. But at the end of the day, I want to talk about a club that, that made a difference, that when you went to, you knew it was like going to church. It was the Paradise Garage. The Paradise Garage opened the same year as Studio 54 in a former downtown Manhattan parking garage. A DJ named Larry LeVan worked the garage's turntables, and dancers were soon referring to LeVan's masterful Saturday night sets as Saturday Mass. Paradise Garage was a black gay club on um, 12th Street here in New York. Head DJ's name was Larry LeVan, which is where everybody went when they wanted to hear the greatest, the best of dance music and disco and be in that atmosphere. Paradise Garage broke the records. The garage was more of an elitist, progressive, bohemian, you know, eclectic record that was more trendy in the musical sense. That last voice is Ray Caviano, record promoter and owner of RFC Records. The contrast between Studio 54 and Paradise Garage highlighted a fissure inside the disco scene. People went to Paradise Garage to engage with disco culture whereas many partied at Studio 54 in hopes of being photographed with celebrities. Even though most insiders considered the garage to be more in tune with authentic disco culture, to the outsider, Studio 54 became the symbol of the culture's glamour and excesses. And to entrepreneurs, it became a blueprint for disco profiteering. (music) 
But opening discotheques like Studio 54 wasn't the only way for businessmen to capitalize on the post-Saturday Night Fever disco craze. Soon, corporate America was slapping the disco label on everything. Any sort of genuine, youthful, cultural rebellion is instantly turned into a commodity by Madison Avenue, by the forces of marketing. This is a story as old as popular culture itself. Wedding planners offered a disco wedding package complete with strobe lights and a smoke machine. For your son's bar mitzvah, you could hire Sol Zim, the disco cantor. There were disco pinball machines. Each box of Count Chocula cereal had a Monsters Go Disco record inside. Disney made watches and pillowcases with disco Mickey Mouse. Sesame Street released two disco albums, Sesame Disco and Sesame Street Fever. Even doctors named a medical condition after disco. There may be disagreement over where else it led, but we now learn that all that music has brought us to something called Disco Foot. Medical groups have had a habit in recent years of throwing wet blankets on anything that sounds like fun, and now the American Podiatrist Association says that disco, <laughs> disco dancing may be a health hazard to your feet, creating Disco Foot, which manifests itself as corns, sprains, and calluses. Disco Mickey and Disco Foot aside, Saturday Night Fever's biggest impact was on disco music itself. The soundtrack sold so many copies that the major record labels, who previously treated disco like an unwanted stepchild, could no longer simply ignore the genre. An awful lot of things change around this film's success, and remarkably during 1978, disco outsells rock uh, as the best-selling genre of the year, and this really shakes up the musical establishment, if you like. When disco explodes with Saturday Night Fever, they think, aha, if we're listening to what a DJ is um, playing and the response to that, then we might be getting the response of a few hundred people in the room or maybe at best a few thousand. Whereas if we go to radio, we're going to get a response of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions. That is the way to make money. And so at this point, again, the, the major record companies stop listening to these, these DJs. Now they were looking for these records rather than looking to us for those records, the DJs and the people that broke those records, they were finding them themselves. And that's when we started with, you know, the Funky Towns, the Ring My Bells, and those very mainstream, poppy type of dance records that I really didn't play because radio was jumping on them first and I was trying to hold on to being the trendsetter. Many of the DJs who are playing in these spots are also getting sick and tired of disco because indeed it had been this quite organic, spontaneous, communicative culture in which initially the record companies were listening to what they were saying. But by the end of the 70s, the DJs are receiving all of these records from the companies and it's a lot of work listening to all this music and a lot of the music they're receiving isn't very good. It was a plethora of garbage, shitty records too. They were amazing disco records right through the mid-80s. They were amazing disco records. But we got a lot of, everybody was jumping on the bandwagon, you know, and just making remakes of standards and just putting beats behind it and calling them disco records. And But we saw through that, you know. We saw through all that stuff. And the record company stopped listening to the people who really understand how this music works. And they start just doing what corporations often do. They have sales targets, production schedules, and they start to pump out this disco music that starts to lack the kind of integrity and organic feel and 
ability to kind of connect with dancers, they stop producing this kind of music and then go to a much more formulaic form of disco. It was starting to get too formula. It was starting to become very blueprint, and that hurt the industry. Too many was a glut of records, and there was an overreaction. But the political forces from within wanted to kill it. At the beginning of 1979, Ray Caviano was on top of the world. Warner Brothers had just given him his own label imprint called RFC Records, a three-year contract, $6 million budget, and a large staff, which Joey Carvello was part of. One of Caviano's first successes at Warner was a remix of Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy, which sold over 2 million copies. You'd think a multi-platinum single like that would reap high praise, but not everyone at Warner Brothers was excited about Caviano's success. The music business, when it became formalized through the 50s and 60s, was built on rock and roll. Then comes this disco scene. It's black, it's gay, it's Donna Summer. It's, what is it? They're a little intimidated by it. It, it interferes with their alpha maleness. <laughs> Can you imagine them going to a club with all these men dancing? They'd probably be caught sweating, and what is this? They hated us at the record companies. The majors, I mean, those the, the promotion people, the senior VPs, VPs of promotion, and those, they, they, they just hated us because, first of all, they couldn't control us. Those records came out of an area that they couldn't stop. They couldn't prioritize disco. Disco prioritized itself. At that point, they weren't ready, but it became so popular. We were breaking hits that they didn't know how to do. They felt uh, a sense of insecurity from that. When I got the deal at Warner Brothers, there was like, it was like, who is this guy? They didn't like the music. I was flashy. I was, I listen, I represented disco. I dressed well. I had a great haircut. I always smelled good. I had manicures. I had girls. I had drugs. I had everything that they ever wanted to have. I had it all. You know what I mean? I had it all. And they just couldn't get into that lifestyle to get that. They were jealous at the end of the day. You guys know you were. If the Warner execs were looking for a reason to turn on RFC Records, it wouldn't be long before they found their chance. Outside the record label offices, the rest of America was beginning to turn on disco as well. There's all these people in middle America, the suburbs and beyond, who are going out and they see Saturday Night Fever. And even Steve Dahl said this, they quite like it to begin with. But then they try, as happens in thousands of discotheques across the country, to mimic what John Travolta is doing and maybe mimic the ridiculous clothes that he's wearing and mimic, you know, bad forms of what we could call DJ culture, but probably aren't even worthy of that name, are reproduced in these clubs where DJs are given a playlist and told what to play. And it's largely not very good join the dots disco. I, I was a disaster in the suburbs. They didn't like me there. I didn't like playing for that crowd and they really didn't like me. I, I, I think that I was an inner city DJ and I had that inner city vibe and um, they were hardcore and very difficult to play new stuff for. And I was very comfortable. I was uncomfortable in the suburbs, hated it. People have a go at this and for a while it's fun, but then it soon starts to collapse because it's not a very good culture. It's not a very integrated culture. The music's not good. The dance is actually difficult. So there's also a sense that, you know, middle America had a bit of a go at disco. It wasn't um, a very nuanced form of disco or organic form of disco. And so they're very ready to turn against disco. So everybody had their disco moment and then grew embarrassed of it, you know, fairly quickly. The backlash of the lifestyle was beginning. People are doing satires on us now. Mad Magazine did a disco thing. When you, when you make the cover of Mad Magazine, they're starting to pan you. 
you can tell that maybe the lifestyle and the way we were looking at it and the way we were enjoying it is beginning to change. All of this ends up coinciding with a downturn in the economy. And it's at that point that disco just becomes a kind of scapegoat, an easy scapegoat for the wide ills in society. At the beginning of 1979, the Iranian government was overthrown by a revolution led by Ayatollah Khomeini. As head of the new Iranian government, one of Khomeini's first decisions was to cut oil production. As a result, oil prices spiked in the United States, inflation and interest rates soared, and soon the economy slipped into a recession. This national slowdown starts to take on a, a much darker tone when people start to look for a way to blame that slowdown on, on particular groups to find scapegoats. Particularly this coalition forms around middle America effectively, starts to target disco's constituencies for the ills of society. So, you know, there's a rise in homophobia, criticism of the gains made by African-Americans during the 1970s, criticism of the number of gains made by women during the 1970s. Whereas, you know, middle American working families feel that they're not making any gains. In Chicago, a radio shock jock named Steve Dahl also felt like he wasn't making any gains. In fact, he had recently lost his job at a radio station after it changed from a rock format to an all-disco format. And obviously, he blamed disco for his firing. When Dahl got back on the air at a different station, he used his show to express his resentment towards disco. One of his shticks was to play a disco song and, before it was over, pull the needle off by scratching it across the vinyl. He then played a recording of a loud explosion symbolically blowing up the disco record. His shtick became popular, and soon the Chicago White Sox, known for their wacky promotional events, invited Dahl to blow up disco records using real explosives at their stadium. A rock radio talk DJ called Steve Dahl engineers this Disco Sucks campaign and then holds a rally in Chicago where there's a baseball double header. And if people who want to see the baseball match bring along a disco record, they can get in for free. 40,000 people show up with disco records and get in for free. Another 40,000 show up with disco records and are locked out because the stadium is full to capacity. Uh, half time during this double header, the records are piled high and are blown up. Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box and we're going to blow them up real good. Disco and baseball didn't mix well last night here in Chicago. In fact, the White Sox must forfeit a game they were supposed to play against the Detroit Tigers, all because of some unruly fans worked up over the disco craze. At Comiskey Park, it was supposed to be another night of controlled mayhem. This was disco demolition night. From the beginning, there were signs of ugliness. Disappointed fans who couldn't get in legally scaled the walls. Between games of the doubleheader, the promoters blew up a container of 5,000 disco records. Suddenly, thousands of young people erupted onto the field. In an hour-long free-for-all, the mob set fires in center field and in the right field grandstand. 
Turf was ripped up and a batting cage destroyed. The melee ended only after Chicago police arrived on the scene. The homophobia and racism of the Disco Sucks movement, it's inherent right in the name. I mean, look at it. Disco Sucks, right? Steve Dahl has been defending that event to this day, and there was a book that just came out saying, oh, it wasn't racist, it wasn't homophobic, but it was. And, you know, there's something fascistic about the notion of burning records you don't like. You know, I mean, you're welcome to your Who and your Leonard Skinner, but why are you going to be burning off the wall by Michael Jackson? Oh, he was an idiot. That is a fat moron and an idiot, Steve Dahl. You don't even have to ask me. He's a fish out of water. He did not fit in. He couldn't get laid in a women's prison with a fistful of pardons. There's no doubt about it. He couldn't get laid on Gilligan's Island with a speedboat. <laughs> it wasn't about the music. It was about guys like him, rock and roll guys that just, like I said, homophobic, fish out of water, no style, no grace. They couldn't get the girls in. We had a disco. We had all the girls. We had all the drugs. We had all the money. We had everything. We just knocked those guys out of the park. And they had no choice but to revolt somehow and put on some sort of stunt because they weren't going to stop the music. The music was great in 1979. Do you think I'm sexy? Come on. Brought Rod Stewart back. Number one disco record. The Stones miss you. I mean, I could go down the list of all these rock acts that were making these records, and that was pissing off the rock people even more. You know? They were, they were just totally pissed off. They were just kicked aside. They were the hottest thing in the world, and now they were nothing. And they had to get back in, and they had to stop this. And he did. He fucking, he, he did. He never stopped the music, but boy, oh boy, we really became a cliche after that. It wasn't just Dahl's constituency that scapegoated disco. The music industry found reasons as well. Led by the soundtracks Grease and Saturday Night Fever, 1978 broke the record for yearly album sales. But rather than view that year as an anomaly, record executives believed it was the new normal and people would continue to buy albums in record-breaking quantities. They were wrong. It was at the height of the disco boom during 1978 when disco ourselves rock. The orders are effectively placed for 1979 by executives who are in charge of a massive commercial operation. And they order all of this disco to be pressed up on the assumption that it's going to be sold in the same kind of numbers of, of March 1978. And it doesn't happen because they don't foresee the economic downturn, which just means that people have less money to spend. The record business is not doing a record business these days. After nearly a quarter century of steady growth, the popular music industry has problems. As discos and their recorded music swept the nation, the record companies spent millions to cash in on the craze, searching out new talent and spending lavishly to create and promote superstars. But now, a sour note. The big beat is still in the music, but the big bucks from the customers are coming in just a little more slowly. A lot of records are bought by an age group whose main buys are gasoline, hamburgers, and records. And with food and fuel way up in price, they don't have much money left for music. I used to go out and buy like three or four a week, you know, but now I just buy like just one. Because I don't have money to spend on records. I'd rather just listen to the radio. So part of the problem they have is they press up huge quantities of vinyl that then isn't sold. So that's part of the thing that then underpins their need to retrench. As the backlash 
came through and the slowdown in the economy came through, the major labels pulled out of disco completely and closed down their disco departments and just stopped engaging with the culture at all. At the start of 1979, Ray Caviano said triumphantly at the Billboard Disco Convention, we have finally made the big time. But before the year was over, disco was under attack and Caviano began an eight-city crusade, as Billboard called it, where he presented statistics, charts, and graphs to the media, demonstrating that the reports of Disco's demise were greatly exaggerated. He publicly criticized the major labels for overcapitalizing the market in hopes of making some quick cash. He told one Billboard reporter that, quote, The labels were not selective about the releases. They merely put out a glut of product and hoped that at least some of it would be successful. But despite Caviano's PR blitz, the same labels that built large disco departments the previous year gutted those departments. And despite RFC Records' past success, it too was on the chopping block. They were looking at the numbers and they overreacted to the disco backlash or whatever. They gave me a major settlement and they let me take my artists with me. That was important. When the disco thing was you know, changing, I changed the name of the department to dance music. That transition came in 79, right after Dahl said, disco became a bad word. It sucked. It sucked. It really sucked. After being cut from Warner, Caviano's newly rebranded dance label affiliated itself with other labels. First, Quality Records in Canada, next Atlantic, and continued on to the mid-80s. Although the music Caviano promoted began to evolve into genres like house and new wave, one thing is clear. No matter how bad the disco backlash appeared, People never stopped dancing. The clubs didn't close down when Steve Dahl said to Disco Demolo. They didn't close down. The Paradise Garage didn't close down. Fire Island didn't close down. The clubs in Chicago or L.A. or San Francisco didn't close down. All it did was just kill that lifestyle that we had. Everybody started dressing down. I mean, the dress codes dropped. Didn't have to wear sports coats to the clubs anymore. It was okay to wear jeans. We were still partying like crazy, but it wasn't, um, it's hard to describe because it didn't stop for us. It didn't stop. I mean, the music just kept on going and the disco was gone because the lifestyle was gone. You know, the music wasn't gone. It just changed. The independents kind of kept going with the culture, but just kind of found a way of trimming their operation. The majors pulled out altogether. But this also cleared the way for a musical and cultural renaissance of the early 1980s and it was partly enabled because the corporates who did have a somewhat distorting impact on the market the corporates were no longer there and that just enabled independent labels djs remixes producers and dancers to form what i call a a virtuous economy when it becomes removed it just changes its name and goes underground again and then you have the house music explosion of the 80s in particular in Chicago, with people like Frankie Knuckles once again performing this celebratory music for an underground of gay, black, and Hispanic people. And certainly, you know, white kids are welcome as well, but you have to accept that community on its own terms. You know, and and house music continues to this day, you know, as a phenomenal worldwide sound. It was an overreaction because disco did not die. It kept going. Between the Liner Notes is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. Goat Rodeo recently released four brand new podcasts. 
There's Dispatches, where host Morgan Givens explores the intricacies of identity, culture, and human interaction through storytelling. There's DC Diary, which is an experimental journey exploring anonymous, shameless public storytelling. There's Failure, which is about that thing no one likes to talk about. Failure. There's the Goat Rodeo Variety Show, and also, Your Story Here has begun its second season. To find out more about these new shows, visit GoatRodeoDC.com. This episode was produced by me, Matthew Billy. Tim Townsend was the editor. Laura Vandiver read the Billboard article. The logo was designed by Jason Silverman. Larissa Shepstone designed the episode art. Big thanks to Joey Carvello, Ray Caviano, Tim Lawrence, and Jim DeRogatis for being our guests. And special thanks to Jerry Rubino, Rupert Allman, Brendan Banaszak, and Evan Chung. For more information about the show, please visit BetweenTheLinerNotes.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. We'll bring you another forgotten story about music on the next Between the Liner Notes. <laughs>